We're going to talk about types of sin and judgment during this lesson. Uh, we're going to talk about God's patience. Praise the Lord, He has it. Grace and mercy. If He didn't have patience, well, we'd be in big trouble. And how a rock and a serpent can represent Jesus. We don't usually think of a serpent representing Jesus, but we'll show you how, he does, how it does. So, <clears throat> we're going to start with rock. The first time rock, of course, remember we talked about the law first mentioned in uh, the Akida study. The first time love is mentioned is significant. The first time rock is mentioned is in Exodus 17, and it is significant. So, I mean, if you search the, the word rock in the Old Testament, there's tons of places it comes up, and they're all kind of interesting once you realize that the rock symbolizes Jesus. So I'm just going to read from this passage in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 3. Um, we'll talk about it. This story is familiar to all of us, but we're going to point out a few things. So the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, According to the command of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Bring the people, or sorry, but the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? <clears throat> so, the Israelites quarreled with Moses, which simply means to complain, um, to argue with words, or physically, is what the word actually means, that, that, that they did. So, they, I'm sure they said a lot of mean and terrible things. Um, but the point is, is that they were arguing, if you notice, the people claimed... Oh, before we go there, uh, if you notice, it says, "Why did you?" Moses said, "Why did you quarrel? Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord?" So, quarreling with Moses, a representative of God, is apparently testing the Lord Himself. So, <clears throat> or he could just be saying that. Well, as we'll see, Moses has a, tem a, a temper, which uh, I can relate to, and it took me years to really fix that. But, um, but yeah, we'll see how it gets him in trouble. So the people claimed that the Exodus was going to kill them all. So they said, you know, we're we're out of the we're out of Egypt, but you brought us to kill our children, us and our livestock with thirst. So the next few verses, Moses cries out to the Lord saying, "What shall I do to this people? Not with these people. What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me." So he's saying, "These people are going to kill me. What do I do to to them to keep them from stoning me?" Or killing me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff which you struck the Nile, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he did exactly what God told him to do. So God commands Moses to strike the rock. If you want to see a picture of what people believe this rock actually is, it's right around the corner, literally, from uh, the uh, Mount Sinai location in Saudi Arabia. It's on. It's in the back there. 
Uh, let me see if I can find it. It's yeah, figure nine one. So there's this rock there, and you can kind of tell how big it is by that second picture down. See those people sitting there in the middle? Yeah. And you can kind of tell that, see that little indent? Uh, if you look at the top picture, you can see where that is. So it's, it's a pretty big rock. And um, there's, if you visit this location, I personally haven't visited, but people that have visited this location say that there's the rocks beneath all of this are, are, are eroded, like river rocks and that there's a dry lake bed at the bottom of it, the base of it. So it's as if water literally didn't trickle out of this, it flowed out of it and formed an actual like pond or lake at the base of it. <clears throat> so could that be the rock? Possibly, it's like I said, it's right around the corner from, I mean, it's just a, no pun intended, a stone's throw from uh, Mount Sinai and, and uh, a lot of artifacts in that area, so. So the water was for all of the people, not just certain people. It was for everybody. God makes some, some strange things happen, but he does it for a reason. I'm reading a book right now, and one of my uh, favorite little sections of it says that, you know, God spoke the universe into existence, but he took time to form people. So, and for a reason. So it's pretty, pretty neat stuff. So God provides water for, from a rock a second time in Numbers chapter 20. <clears throat> so if one wasn't enough, or, well, he's had, they've had several miracles happen, things they can't explain. They, they continue to complain. God, through his mercy, does it again. He gives them, rock, a rock, or gives them water from a rock a second time in Numbers chapter 20. I'll just read that. Uh, then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died and, there, and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and said, If we had perished with our brother, or sorry, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord, why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, <clears throat> nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. So they went to God. So the Israelites are complaining again. It's real easy to say, you know, these Israelites should complain a lot, but then again, so do we. And if you have kids, so do they. It's like, oh, gotcha. Yep. So when you always complain, you eventually become a fault finder. How many know people like that? Should everyone should probably raise their hand, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I'm close with a few of them, and uh, there's people that. If we go out with them, it's almost it's almost like I don't want to be around them because I know they're going to complain about every little thing about, you know, we go out to eat or something and it's like something's wrong with the water, something's wrong with the every little bit of it and we're good, you know. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the way these people were. They just found something. They, they, they literally will start looking for stuff to complain about. So fault finder basically is what that is. 
So verses 7 through 8 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So this time, it's a little different. God commands Moses to speak to the rock. What do you think he would have said? (laughs) Excuse me, rock? (laughs) So the water was for all the people and their beasts. So a little more grace here than just mercy. It's giving water to everybody and the animals. That's the thing. When manna fell, there was always more than enough. It wasn't like just enough for certain people. It was for everybody, but there was some left over. All right, so verses 9 through 13, Moses, his temper gets in the way here. So Moses took the rod from the, before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron assembled the, assembled the, sorry, gathered the assembly before the rock and said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? <clears throat> you can kind of feel his frustration. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beast drank. But, and I'm going to stop there. So, he was told to speak to the rock, and we're going to talk about possibly why. But instead, he, he, he uh, repre- misrepresents God. Moses re- misrepresented God. He made God feel like, made, made the people think that God was angry at them. Um, because of his actions, his attitude, and hitting the rock twice. I mean, I always kind of wonder, did he go tap, tap? Or did he strike it once and nothing happened? And then do it again and then something happened? Like, whew, glad it happened that time, you know. Or, uh, yeah, I mean, you almost wonder if there was a silence when he hit it the first time. Like, uh-oh. And maybe Aaron said, hey, you were actually supposed to speak to the rock. And uh, that made him mad, so he hit it again. Who knows? So maybe they should make a movie about that. be interesting. Um, <clears throat> and then it says here, Shall we bring forth water from you out of this rock? Who's bringing the water out of the rock? God. But Moses is saying we, as in him and Aaron and these elders. Um, So who brought the water, Moses and Aaron or God? Moses misrepresented God, yet God kept his promise. That's that first sentence there. And then it goes on and says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me, go ahead and highlight that if you want, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. It just shows the location. So, because of Moses' what? Unbelief. Not because he said something. I mean, I'm sure that wasn't good, obviously, but not because he struck the rock twice, but because he didn't believe, because of his unbelief. He was punished and could not enter the land. So because he literally did not speak to the rock, just a little detail, right? But there's a probably a reason there. He was not allowed to enter the promised land. He was able to go up to a mountain, see it, and then he died shortly after. But because of this sin of his, he was prevented from actually, you know, he, how many years was he in the desert following, you know, 
letting a whole generation die off. Then the kids grew up and the ones that believed and went in, and then he didn't get to go in with them after all that. So, <clears throat> so why water from a rock? Oh, because of Moses. Oh, I already said that, yeah. He was punished and cannot enter the land. So why water from a rock? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4 says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, the cloud by day, and passed through the sea, well, in the pillar of fire by night also, but, um, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud, or, or identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and ate the same spiritual food, and drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So the rock represents Christ. Big surprise, right? Spiritual drink. So the water represents something too. So the rock, rock represents Christ. Water represents something else. So John 10, uh, 4 says in verse 10 through 14 says jesus answered and said if you knew the gift of god and who it says to you give me a drink this is the samaritan of course uh, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water and she said to him sir you have nothing to draw from and the well is deep thus where do uh, sorry when then do you get that living water where do you where then do you get that living water you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. So water represents eternal life. So you've got two instances where a rock is struck. Let's say the rock represents Jesus. Uh, the first time it was struck, second time it was supposed to be spoken to, but it was struck twice. Yet, through God's grace and mercy, uh, he provided water for them anyway. Okay, so why two rocks? So the first rock was struck, and the second rock was supposed to be spoken to and not struck. Is this a model for the first and second coming of Christ? We've got a rock twice. We've got Jesus twice Jesus was struck the first time second time he will come to reign so he wouldn't be struck but Moses could did Moses mess up this model here that would have been like a prophetic model it sure seems like it so Moses messed up didn't know what he was supposed to be didn't know what he was told the second time so he was punished and but yeah is this a model for the first and second coming of christ most likely because jesus is the rock rock gives eternal life or water um jesus the first time he came was supposed to be he was supposed to be struck obviously and killed for us die for us and the second time he's coming to rule and reign and you could you could even go as far as to say when the remnant of israel calls on his name or speaks his name for him to come back speak to the rock you know that he comes back so so that's the rock. <clears throat> All right. Any questions? Pretty straightforward. Go go through the Old Testament and search for rock now. And now that you have this perspective of uh, what a rock represents, see if you notice anything. I'm sure you will. There's a lot of, you could do a whole study on just rocks. So um, let's see. So the serpent 
All right, so we're all familiar with this, possibly. Most of us are probably familiar with this uh, story. It event, uh, the event occurs in Numbers chapter 21. Got some interesting history here to talk about. But okay, verses one through five, the serpent. How many like snakes? Or don't don't like snakes? Okay, most of you, yeah. I have one. You have one? Can you like let people hold it? Because I want you to hand it to my wife and see what she does. She yeah. She would be gone. I mean, like running down the highway. So Yeah, she he doesn't like she doesn't like snakes. So um so Numbers chapter 21, verse 1 through 5, I'll just kind of read this and we'll talk about it. So when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, that then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you indeed deliver this people into my hand, did you notice that? Israel into my hand, so it's almost as if one person. Then I will utterly destroy their cities. So you got Israel in the first, first person? Kind of interesting. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. They, then it's they all of a sudden, it's plural. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. Then they went out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go to the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. So they're kind of like south of the Red Sea, and they go up to the east of it, kind of around it. If you have a map, that's kind of, they went from the south up in, down in Africa, basically, and kind of went up like this. Um, and then it says they became impatient because of their journey. Oh, big surprise. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They just can't let that go. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. All right, so the Canaanite king of Arad fought the Israelites. I looked up this guy. There's some interesting, uh, there's a website called uh, A History of Israel or Israel a History of. So Og, the king of Bashan, was said to be the last of the Rephaim. Now, if you're into like Nephilim and stuff like that, the Rephaim were some remnants of the Nephilim after the flood. Okay, and there's actually some archaeological stuff east of Israel, kind of east of Israel, um, where Rephaim lived, and they built these huge uh, structures that don't look like anything from the ground, but when you go, go up into the sky, they, they, they're different, really, you know, geometrically perfect shapes. So um, big rocks, you know, big, big people that could lift rocks like that, um, so likely giants. But yeah, the Rephraim are mostly giants, from what it says here. Um, but Og is an extremely interesting person in the Old Testament. Og and Sihon, king of Gilead, were feared warriors and monarchs prior to the Israelites' entrance into Canaan. Scripture describes Og as a giant. This is the guy with the really big bed. Uh, it's over 14 feet long. It's in Deuteronomy 3.11, if you want to read that. His bed was over 14 feet long and 6 feet wide. What would a king, what would be, what's bigger than a king-size bed? Giant-size bed? Anyway. Uh, not only that, it was made of iron. I'm sure it was heavy. Iron was no doubt needed to support such a large body, which most certainly weighed hundreds of pounds. Nephilim giants such as Og, according to some scholars, may have been numerous at the time, at this time of his, in the history of Palestine. Though Sihon is not said to have been a giant in scripture, he was certainly most associated with these people. 
Rabbinic literature states that Og and Sion were, Sion were brothers. Sion was the mightiest of the two. I'm getting to a rod in a second. <clears throat> Sion was the mightiest of the two, and the Midrash states that he was the equivalent of Og in bravery and stature. The ancient rabbis also list Og and Sihon as grandsons of Shamhazai, who was believed to be one of the original fallen angels responsible for the Nephilim in Genesis. The ancient documents also associate Sihon as the king of Arad, described here in Numbers, as the Canaanite in Numbers 21.1. So, little history there, kind of interesting. Um, some of it's from scripture, some of it's not, but um, very old texts. So, kind of interesting there. So, <clears throat> sorry, microphone. So, Israel vowed to completely destroy the Canaanite cities if God would deliver them, the enemy to them. And then, of course, we talked earlier about how Israel is referred to singular in verses 2 and 3. Like, I will utterly destroy. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel rather than the voices. It's kind of interesting. The Lord delivered the Canaanites into the hands of Israel. He did what he was... He did what they asked. A little more mercy and grace there. Or grace, I guess. The Israelites are still murmuring or complaining against God and Moses. So God decides to, I guess you could say, bring out the big guns. God had brought them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. That's one of the complaints they have. Another one. That's well, the same complaint, really. No food or water. And they loathed the manna. And again, we talked about this. Israel named it manna. God named it bread. So God, I and mean, later in Scripture, God might refer to it as manna, but God didn't name it manna. The people did. Israel called it what is it, and God called it bread from heaven. So, and then manna is really a picture of Jesus too, bread of life from heaven, obviously. So, <clears throat> all right. So verses six through nine, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the pe people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. I should have said that a few other times. But intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And then he said, the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that a serpent, if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. All right, so God judges. This is God judging. He's not uh, providing water for them or just making the snakes go away. Um, he's sending, or, or yeah, he's not, he's punishing them this time. God, uh, Lord sends fiery serpents as judgment on Israel. That word fiery is different in a couple of translations. It, it's In the Septuagint, the word deadly is used. So the Lord sends deadly serpents. The Vulgate uses the word burning, burning serpents. So the serpent was probably the Najah Haje of Egypt, if that's how you say it. There's a picture of it in the back there. Um, and if you notice in Hebrew, if, if you, in Hebrew the word for snake is Nahash, and, uh, which also means bronze. So it's kind of interesting, but we'll talk about that too. So the people suffer. They desperately wanted the serpents to be removed from their presence. 
and God teaches this time. Unlike verses 1 through 5, instead of simply removing the serpents, he gives an object lesson. And when it says, uh, uh, make a fiery serpent, in the Hebrew it literally says, make for yourself a fiery serpent. So there's some, it's something personal about this. A fiery serpent made of brass or bronze. You could put brass slash bronze or bronze. It doesn't really matter. Everyone that looked at the serpent survived their serpent bites and lived. They didn't have to uh, suck out the venom or cut out their cut off their limb that was bit or you know anything like that. They just had to look at this thing that Moses built. Alright, so God delivers. So by faith, the people bitten by serpents were healed of their serpent bites. And they lived. By faith, not by doing something, just just well, just by looking at this thing. So they basically just had to believe God or trust in God that his word would what the what he told them to do would save them. So Jesus himself actually explains what this passage is because after that it just kind of disappears and we, we see it later and uh, we see the serpent again later briefly mentioned in another book but we'll talk about that. So Jesus explains the passage in of course John 3 um, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So if you look at the pictures in the back if you notice a serpent on a pole looks very uh, familiar, you know, it looks like uh, there's that figure nine four, which kind of, kind of, in a kind of poetic way, um, illustrates it there. So you got a cross and you got a cross. So you got a sin, you got a serpent, and you got a cross. Well, what's the serpent supposed to mean? Well, we'll talk about that. And you might see some familiar uh, medical uh, symbols down there. We'll talk about those too, kind of where those came from. Obviously, they came from this, but we'll talk about what happened, why they're different. So, the, the, this event and Jesus' appearance on earth were approximately 1,500 years apart, 1,500 years apart. Serpents are a type of sin in the scriptures. So, when you see serpent... When you're reading the scripture and you see something about serpent, in your mind just change it to sin and see if it changes the meaning of the, if the see if the verse makes more sense to you or might you know kind of make it might mean something in, in a more significant way, just like rock represents the source of sin, uh, the devil. Sin didn't start with Adam. Sin started with, for man with Adam, but sin entered the universe through the devil. So the serpent in this passage represents Jesus, who became sin for us. We don't usually associate or attribute Jesus as uh, with bad things or evil things, but li Jesus is literally represented by evil here. So, or sin, because he literally became 
our sin. I don't think it's really something we can comprehend that someone becoming sin, especially all sin, I mean, that's every single sin in history. Jesus became that. So it's, it's something we really can't comprehend, but um, that's what happened. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 confirms that for us. He, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All right, so to become bra- or sorry, to be brazen or a brass is a Levitical symbol of judgment. So brass or bronze is typically associated with judgment. It is the metal that can withstand fire, and it's used on the brazen altar. So that's why the brazen altar is made of brass, because otherwise it would melt, because it's always burning when they're doing sacrifices. So like the serpent, Jesus was also lifted up on a pole. So we see very specific details here. We don't see poetic you know, imagery. We see a literal serpent being raised up on a pole when Jesus was literally raised up on a pole. So he's being very, very specific here. Very detailed. So what happened to this serpent, the, the actual bronze serpent that Moses built? Well, if you go to 2 Kings 18... We have a really good king come to power, Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18, 1-2. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. So about 800 to 900 years later, after the serpent is built, Hezekiah become, began his reign over Judah. And just like stubborn people that we are, what did they do with the serpent? Well, he first of all, he reigned from the age of 25 to 54, total of 29 years. So he was 25 and he was 54 when he <clears throat> when his reign ended and he so 29 years. Says in 2 Kings 18.3, we're going to say a few good things about Hezekiah here. Uh, he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Uh, 2 Kings 18.4, he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. If you're wondering what Asherah is and sacred pillars, well, without getting into too much detail, they're basically pagan Im- pagan imagery, uh, fertility stuff, you know, I'll probably... See where I'm going with that. Um, symbols, symbolism, uh, uh, sexual stuff. I'll just say it. That's as far as I'll go with that. But he tore down the pagan imagery and idols that the Jews have been worshiping. Really, really dark stuff. Some translations say groves. And that doesn't mean like pretty tree-like you know, areas. It's literally uh, pagan symbols and statues and stuff like that. Little ones and big ones. and Yeah, they're, yeah a, lot of, a lot of weird stuff. So he, tore, he got rid of all that stuff, Hezekiah did. And then he says he also broke in, in verse 4, he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. And that's it. That's the last you see of it. So the people were literally worshiping this serpent that if you looked at it, you were healed. They didn't think, oh, well, that's, this is imagery. This, you know, they thought that the serpent 
on the pole was magical or something, or was a god. So they, they literally called it Nahushtan, which means um, snake or brass snake. It actually means brass. The same word means brass and snake, so it's kind of interesting that it was a brass snake, but Nahushtan is uh, the name they gave it. So The Jews eventually worshipped the creation and not the creator. Uh, Nahushtan comes from, again, the word Nahash, which means serpent, bronze, or oracle. There's a debate on if serpent in the in Genesis is snake or shining one because of the translation, because of the word. But I think it's it more leans on snake because it crawls on his belly and stuff like that. So, um, so Second Kings eighteen five through six says that he trusted in the Lord Hezekiah, the God of, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was no one like among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, who did not part from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So this was a good king, one of the few. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and not in of the things of this world. Not in the things of this world. So there's some uh, symbolism that formed out of this story and this event. Um, it led to the Greek legends of Asclepius, who's the god of... What do you think? Healing. Which was symbolized as, what do you think? A brass serpent on a pole or a cross. And that's the medical symbol you see on, you know, hospitals and ER, you know, ambulances driving around, business cards of hospital staff. Um, with the one symbol, with the one serpent and the cross, that's, that's the right symbol. Um, what's interesting is though there's another symbol with the two serpents and the wings. That's actually the uh, uh, god of the, the symbol for Hermes. And interestingly enough, it's the god of commerce. So, so that's the. Uh, yeah, so every time I see that symbol, I'm like, that's the right one. And I see the other one, nope, that's not the right one. So if, they, if you see a medical vehicle with the winged snakes, um, yeah, they didn't get that one right. So, but hey, things lose meaning after thousands of years. So, all right, well, that's, that's the rock and the serpent. It took me a while to figure out what I was going to call this study. I was thinking the serpent and the rock, the serpent and the rocks, the rocks and the serpent. But then I thought I'll just be chronological and go the rock and the serpent. So make it simple. I think way too much about stuff like that. So, all right, summary. Our rocks are a type or model of Christ, and water is a type or model of life, or eternal life. We're getting out a little early tonight. We can talk, or we can do whatever. So, no big deal. I'm not feeling great tonight, so it's fine with me. All right, serpents are a type or model of sin, and brass or bronze is a type or model of judgment. So think about these things when you're reading scripture. When you see brass mentioned, think, oh, judgment. When you see a snake mentioned, oops, sin. So Jesus the rock gives us living water as a gift by faith. And Jesus literally became sin on a pole. Therefore, the serpent represents Christ. Christ. 
so that all who look to him are saved by faith and not of works. Jesus literally became sin on a pole, therefore the serpent represents Christ, so that all who look to him are saved by faith and not of works. And it's kind of difficult to, to imagine Jesus as being represented as something like a snake, but when you literally are the sin sacrifice for all mankind, that's, that's what the snake represents. So, All right, so two memory verses. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him have eternal life. And of course, what's the verse right after that? John 3.16. Not memory verse, but that's the verse right after John 3.14 and 15. Uh, Proverbs 25.21, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So, he's just doing what he told us to do. You know, they're thirsty, I'm going to give him water to drink. So, and then he ultimately gave us spiritual water.